0: The Baseball Lifer Podcast is on the air! Well, hi everybody. Don Wardlow here, Baseball Lifer in Residence. There's a few things I want to mentioned before we bring on our guest, Ann Montgomery, former sports anchor, former sports official and wannabe baseball umpire. But before we get to her, there's several things I want to talk about. First of all, once again, we're available on Snowman Multimedia. Second thing, we now have a sponsor. The Baseball Lifer podcast is now sponsored by Cortland Computer Services. And you'll hear about that later in the show. But this is our first week having a sponsor. We've been a sustaining podcast up until now. So this week, I'm doing this on Friday, the 28th of April. This week, the Reds swept the Rangers in three particularly exciting games. Monday, they won seven to six on a walk off single in the last of a night. Tuesday, the Reds put up six runs in the eighth inning, and the game being in Cincinnati, that was their last at-bat after the Rangers went out in the ninth, so they won that game seven to six, and then on Wednesday afternoon, they won five to three in the last of the ninth of a tie game, they got a two-run walk-off home run, so that was a rough series for the Texas Rangers, but the Reds are hotter than they've been, the Tampa Bay Rays continue to be hot, as do the Pirates and the Chicago Cubs. And yes, it's April, but it's nice to see some of these teams doing well, who normally don't and who may not as the season goes along, depending on how their teams hold together. I'm talking about holding together. The Yankees aren't doing that. They lost their first season series to the Minnesota Twins, In 22 years, yes, it was 2001, the last time the Twins beat the Yankees in a season series, but the Twins took four out of six. And yes, it's just the end of April, but the Twins and Yankees won't see each other again unless they both happen to make the playoffs. And right now for the Yankees, that's a very iffy proposition. It was bad enough. And then it got worse. Yesterday, Aaron Judge left the game injured. And you truly can't replace an Aaron Judge. And like Giancarlo Stanton, Judge is one of these guys who, when he's out there, there's nobody like him. But when he's not out there, there's nobody that can replace him. And both of them are now on the shelf for the Yankees, along with some of their pitchers. Carlos Rodon, uh, Luis Severino, Lou Trevino, to name just a few. The Yankees have, last I heard, seven pitchers on the injured list. So that's our look at baseball present. Now we're going to take a word from our sponsor, and after that, you'll hear from Ann Montgomery, former Sports official, former sports anchor on television, including the big one, ESPN, and one-time attendee of umpiring school. She'll talk about all that after we take a word from our sponsor. Stand by. I'm having such a problem at work.
1: It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our Computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the Internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web or at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860, 732-356-8860,
0: courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here. And my guest. She has been a sports caster, sports official, still is an author, and has been a teacher. My guest is Ann Montgomery. Ann, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, Don. I'm glad to uh be invited to talk about baseball, among other things.
0: Which we certainly will do. Now, you were born in New Jersey, which is where I'm from and where we do the broadcast from. And Something that you took up as a hobby. I would say the ice skating turned out to be a great help in one of your early jobs.
2: It did, and I have to do a little correcting for you, Don. I wasn't actually born in Jersey. I was born in Michigan, but I, I did move to Jersey as a as a two-year-old. So I grew up in New Jersey and consider myself a Jersey girl. So yes. <laughs> Uh, I spent my, uh, my growing up years in Jersey. I don't know uh, where you're you, where you're from in New Jersey, but I grew up near South Mountain Arena um,
0: in West Orange. Yes,
2: yeah, so I'm from Livingston originally. And when I was five, my parents took me skating, and I ended up being an ice skater for about twenty four or five years. Uh, originally, I was I was a figure skater. I was an ice dancer. I had no talent. I was too big. I was extremely mediocre. But Today, you know, now that Title IX happened, I would play hockey. I loved ice hockey, uh, but I did decide to become a sports official. It was kind of accidental. Um, I went to I, I wanted to be a sportscaster and of course, you know that was back in the 70s when there simply weren't women sportscasters. And I'll never forget my mother uh, coming to me and saying, so what do you want to be when you grow up? It's time to pick a college And I said, I want to be a sportscaster And she said, I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. Don't be ridiculous. But the point is, is that because I'd grown up ice skating and I'd grown up admiring hockey, um, when I got out of college, I was in Washington D.C. and I went to a, a Washington Capitals game with my aunt, and a gentleman joined us, and he was an amateur hockey official, and he was bemoaning the fact that there simply weren't enough ice hockey officials for you know little kids hockey, and my aunt said, "Oh, Annie can skate." And I went, okay, sure, I'll be a referee. And that's kind of how that started. Um, And my first game was a nightmare because I'd never been on hockey skates. And, of course, hockey skates are different from figure skates because there are no toe picks. Toe picks are for landing jumps and things like that, but they're also for lazy skaters like me. They were good for getting up off the ice. When I took my first face-off with little five-year-old kids, and they're like, their jerseys are at their ankles, and they're, they're using little sawed-off sticks, and their helmets are all tilted on their little heads, you know. I fell down three times taking that first face off. But a light bulb went off in my head on the way home when I said, this is my end to become a sportscaster. Because at that point, I had never played football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, basketball, the five main team spectator sports. Um, and I didn't know enough about those games. So, I decided I'd take five years officiate those five team sports, and that somewhere somewhere a somehow somewhere a news director who was forward thinking would give me a job as to be a sportscaster and That is exactly what happened what your I say, what, what I, your
0: mom said to you about uh, let's have a serious conversation sounds very much like what the state of New Jersey said to me when it came time to get a college education I said i want to be." a radio broadcaster and they said you're completely wasting your education.
2: So well, I, why would they say that? Today they wouldn't say that. Because well, they
0: certainly did in 1981 and I I went anyway and and even without the state, you know, paying my freight, I learned to broadcast and became a professional broadcaster but you faced some of the same things and longer because even when you did get that job in Columbus, Georgia, I'm sure, to be perfectly honest, guys in the land of Lester Maddox wouldn't exactly be real happy about a woman broadcasting their sports.
2: No, they weren't. And, and I, you know, I'd like to tell you, Don, that things have gotten better. I don't know that they really have. Um, you know, I, I ended up, working for five TV stations. And I wrote, I I was also, uh, when I aged out of TV uh, that meant I wasn't pretty enough to be on camera anymore. I was pushing 40 and I, I, I I begged a local newspaper to let me write sports and they looked at me and said, and this is a little newspaper. This isn't a big, you know, Arizona Republic thing. They, the newspaper, I, I applied for this job. And the guy said, well, you don't know how to write sports. I said, I wrote sports for 10 years in television
0: And I'd anchored
2: sports and they were like, no, no, you don't know how to write sports. And I begged them to hire me for $7 an hour. And, and they were still, it was still like, how could a woman write sports? And, and then all my stories kept ending up on the front page of the paper all the time. So they were like, oh, maybe she can write sports. But yeah, I faced that, you know, you have to remember, I, I, as I said, I, I worked for five TV stations, three newspapers, three magazines but I also officiated for 40 years and, and primarily baseball and and football and for up 40 years. They still didn't completely accept me being out there. I was still a freak and I wish things would change more quickly. And we do have more women sportscasters now, of course, but they're still not getting the big jobs. How many women do you hear doing play by player color? None, almost none, certainly not at the pro levels. And, and it, it, bothers me a lot that we haven't made more progress. But, you know, I, I feel I've accomplished the things I set out to accomplish. So I, I guess I shouldn't complain.
0: On the Baseball Lifer podcast with Ann Montgomery. And Anne, before we talk about the umpiring school, which I certainly will, how did you go from working on a TV channel in a certain city, whether it be columbus georgia rochester new york how did you get to the four letter network espn
2: well you know back then i I worked at espn uh, 1990 to 92 and and i think that was the time they were finally starting to realize that they needed to have a more diverse group on the air um and so they were actively looking for women and i was uh on the air here in phoenix which is where i live now um, and I, I, I was very fortunate when I got hired by uh, KTSP TV here that I had a very fabulous news director who did not treat me differently because I was a woman. And in fact, I moved here the year the NFL Cardinals came here and he had two other guys that had been at the station a lot longer than I had. And he named me the beat reporter for the Cardinals, which was a plum gig. And for a woman to get that was unheard of. So I was very fortunate that I got, no, there was none of the sending me out to do stories that weren't actually sports related, which is what happens to women who are in sports. It's like, if you take, for example, the the, the women on the sidelines of NFL games, let's be honest, they could just be nurses because very rarely do they talk about football. They talk about somebody who might've sprained their ACL and they don't know if they're coming back in the game or not. So I, I got the actual gigs that, you know, I covered the Phoenix Suns on Friday night that, you know, that was my day at the office. So, I mean, bottom line is I got treated very fairly here. And so uh, one of the gentlemen who did the hiring at ESPN was in Phoenix and saw me on the air and called my agent. And I ended up at ESPN. But I will say ESPN was not any fun. Um, I was used to going out and do, writing reports, you know, writing packages that were interesting. And I was a prisoner, pretty much. I was stuck on this set the whole time I was there, and it wasn't any fun. So that—that that is how they—they they, they saw me on TV and were looking for women, and and made an offer to my my agent, and I accepted it. Now,
0: before our interview began, if someone put me on Millionaire, and the final question for the million was name a couple of early espn women on sports center i would have said robin roberts and andrea kramer did you meet those two
2: robin and i were hired the same week she was like that yeah she's one of the most lovely people you'll ever meet i only met andrea once because she was based in chicago she wasn't actually based in bristol uh but my, I had a producer here at Channel 10 in Phoenix that was also hired when I was, and he ended up working with Andrea the whole time. So we were all hired at the same time because I think ESPN realized they had this, it was a giant network then too, and it was all men. So they, they were, I don't know if there were legalities involved in why they hired us, uh, but they did hire a bunch of us all at the same time.
0: Some years before your ESPN experience you went to umpiring school for baseball i did let's talk about that
2: okay i when i first became an umpire um of course it was unheard of i i I was in washington dc i decided after I, i did hockey that i had to jump right into the other five sports so i contacted a local baseball association and said i wanted to be an umpire and there was silence on the phone like you're joking And and the guy tried to talk me out of it. And I said, no, no, I'd really, you know, they were starting their training classes. And I, I showed up and there was silence. There were, there were like 10 new officials. And there was this big, tough looking guy who was the teacher. And he was a former DC uh, policeman who'd been an umpire for years. And if you could have taken like a, 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 the the umpire you wanted in a movie, it would be this guy. He looked like it. He talked like an umpire. And and so he did everything he could to run me off. He swore every other word. He said really atrocious things. And, and if he thought that was going to upset me, he was wrong. Because I'd spent four years living in a girl's dorm. And girls are pretty awful. So there was nothing he said that I found offensive. And when he couldn't run me off, he took me under his wing. And so he took me out to my first little league games that were terrifying. I mean, I never played baseball, so I I had no idea what I was getting into. And he, and af, after I worked for him for about 2 years, he said, "You know, you should go to umpire school." And I didn't even know what that was. And I got NASA, the National Association of Sports Officials magazine every month and there were there were stories about about uh, umpire school. So I I applied to uh, Bill Kinnaman's umpire school, which was five weeks of baseball in St. Petersburg, and it was me and 105 guys, plus the instructors, and and honestly, they didn't think I was really going to show up. And I got there, and it was like being in the being in boot camp. They uh, the first week, five men quit; they couldn't take the abuse because uh, do you remember who John Don, uh, John McSherry was?
0: absolutely who doesn't One of the
2: great great guy but when i went to umpire school he was terrifying you know he's a great big man and everybody said he, he wasn't there at the beginning of camp he was a couple days late nobody would explain why they just kept saying wait till Mitch sherry gets here wait till Mitch sherry gets here and he came in and he had had a root canal and he was like an angry buffalo I mean, he he was stomping around and and we'd all be doing drills on the field like safes and outs. They'd make us do 100 safe out calls. And he would go up and down the line and stare at us. And and he'd say he'd be really mean. And the idea at umpire school was if you're going to be an umpire, you're going to be abused every time you go on the field. And if you can't take it, quit now. So so they would do terrible things to people. And what they did to me was one day uh, John McSherry said, you, and my, 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 my legal name's Ann Butler, and he goes, you, Butler, you bring the balls up to the field after lunch. I said, yes, sir. And so I went to get the balls for the field. And there's another umpire standing there named John Higgins. And I said, I'm here to get the balls. And he said, oh, they're already up on the field. I said, no, no, McSherry told me to get them. He said no no they're up there i know they are so i go up there i'm waiting I'm one of the first ones there because you can't be late in baseball you know that no way. and all the other guys are running up the field and we're standing there and mcsherry goes all right we're going to be working on on calls at first base safe out look look at the foot hitting the bag and and the, and, and listen for the pop in the glove and then he goes where are the balls and i went oh oh higgins told me they were up here goes Baller, where are the balls? We told you to bring the balls. Now all your friends here can run laps till you go get them. And I had to run all the way down the hill, find the balls, bring them up. And the men are swearing at me, you know, because I didn't have the balls. Now, was this a setup? Yes, it was. But
0: you you got played. That's all I got
2: played. And the ironic part is that seven years later, I ran into John Higgins, who set me up and I married him. How
0: do you like that?
2: I know. Life is strange. Um, but anyway, McSherry, uh, underneath all that bluster, was a wonderful man. In fact, he came to our wedding. Um, but he, you know, that's the way it is. And he was right. They were right to abuse us like that. Because I've never, barely ever worked a ball game where someone wasn't mad at me. I mean, I spent 25 years calling baseball at from from Little League to men's leagues. I actually had a couple opportunities to do. I I did the uh, San Francisco Giants and the Phoenix Firebirds, a triple A affiliate in a televised um, game once, which was one of the highlights of my career. It was very exciting for a number of reasons. But um, the point is, is that umpires, you need to expect to take crap. And if you can't hack that, don't be an umpire. And that is why we don't have enough umpires today at the amateur level. Too many people have such thin skins that they can't handle the abuse. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to abuse umpires, but it does come as part of the package when you're an official and you have to learn how to handle that. So yeah, umpire school was very eye-opening for me. Um, I was a little disappointed because it, it was like Stockholm syndrome at the end. You know, you'd been there for five weeks with these people. They—it was nothing but baseball all day. You know, we were in classrooms, we were on the field. We did some college ball, you know, in scrimmages. We did—I did—got to do the Mets in spring training, which was interesting. But we, at the end, you all want to be a professional umpire, and I was voted thirty-second out of one hundred and five men, only because—excuse me, uh-huh. pardon me. Most of the umpires refused to. They were told not to advance me. There was Bill Kinnaman said he didn't want a, a woman to go out of his school, and so they wouldn't vote for me. And only John McSherry put me in the top ten. I think it was the top ten. So if everybody else had done that, I would have gotten a job in baseball. Now, did I deserve one? I don't know. I'm a pretty bad runner. So maybe not. And then you say, how do I know this? Well, I married John Higgins, who told me all these things when we got married.
0: But being 32nd, you still couldn't work in single I, A or rookie? I football? missed
2: it. I missed the cutoff by two. The top 30 got assigned uh to the minor leagues.
0: That's and the the way it was done is just appalling. That's yeah, only, it is. The it only is. word and, I can use.
2: And and I look back on it and I wonder. I would have certainly done it. I mean, you actually didn't get assigned to the minor leagues. You went to minor league training camp. uh, And you might have gone to rookie ball, wherever. Um, But I wondered if it would have been, I I would have tried it for a while, but I ultimately wanted to be a broadcaster. And they probably did me a favor. But it's funny, I, I really, truly believe that once I got that first job in sportscasting, I would quit baseball, I would quit football, I wouldn't be an official anymore. But I couldn't do it. I, I I continued officiating till 2019. is when I called my last football game. So yeah, it, it's, it was a funny thing. It was a me- meant to be officiating was meant to be a means to an end for me. and and in fact, it proved to be a lifelong avocation that that I miss more than my jobs, my real jobs
0: on the baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here along with Ann Montgomery. I, I just can't imagine a woman refereeing football. I don't mean baseball, yes. I can see that. In fact, there was one woman who did make it, at least briefly. I've forgotten her name.
2: Pam, but, you know, baseball, why there aren't there aren't women on parts? It makes absolutely no sense. It it seriously is not brain surgery. And, did you
0: did you get some hassle refereeing football?
2: Oh, of course I did um uh i when when i i i did football for about eight years before i came to arizona and and when you go from state to state as an amateur official usually there's some mechanism in place for you to be looked at and and placed at whatever your skill level is and that would be certified meaning you're certified one top official and and I should have been able to come into Arizona and and they said, OK, uh, you've worked elsewhere. We're going to come out and watch you and decide if you're certified. For four years, they refused to come and watch me. They simply wouldn't watch this. Uh, I'm sorry, this was baseball. Uh, they wouldn't come watch me work every year in baseball. Uh, and it's the same organization that, that does football. Um, so they just, they, every year they go, oh, we forgot to come and see you, see you work again. Well, the bottom line was I was the only woman in a couple hundred men. How could they forget to come see me? And the only reason I got certified was because I went in the next year and I hand, I had a videotape of me working the plate with the giant San Francisco Giants, the Phoenix Firebirds. I said, I'm the one with the ponytail behind home plate. And the commissioner looked at me and he said, okay, you're certified. Football was equally as crappy because they would put me on crews with men that didn't want me. And and they would throw me off the crew at the end of the year saying, we're never going to get the championship games with you on our crew because you're a woman. And they were right. They were absolutely right. So uh, about 20 some years ago, I decided I was tired of being thrown off other men's crews. So I decided to become the referee. Now, are you a football fan?
0: Not a very big one. I follow my alumni, my, my my college alma mater, but that's about as far as I go with football.
2: Okay, but here's the question. How many referees are on a football field? One. Oh, my gosh, you're like the second person who ever got that right. Yes, there's one. It's the white hat that says I have holding 76 offense you know, it's a 10-yard penalty. We'll replay second down. They're the one that communicates to the press box. I decided to become the white hat, the referee, make my own crew. And then I stood up in a meeting of 400 officials. And I said, I'm going to be a referee this year. I'm anybody who'd like to be on my crew. I'll meet you over here at the end of the meeting. And People were kind of shocked, but my attitude was they'll know what they're getting. They know they're working with a woman referee. They'll know they're never going to get the 6A state championship. Um, But I'm a very good official. And guys stayed with me. Some of them stayed with me 12 years. So I had got, you know, you work with the same guys year after year. So that was the best move I ever made. I became the referee and crew chief, which meant I'm not throwing me off my crew. And and I enjoyed it immensely. And though I love baseball dearly, and and it was my first, uh, you know, as officiating, baseball was the one I loved the most. But football became that. Honestly, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Don, that I quit baseball because I was tired of being hit by baseballs.
0: I hear that, and you can't be can't be blamed because the no, baseball, and, and baseball when I when I is...
2: see they're horrible, and when when I go to games and I see people reaching out for a line drive into the stands, I'm diving under the seats. I've been hit so many times with baseballs, and and I just decided I, I didn't want to get hit anymore. I'd rather be hit with a football player, and I've been hit by <laughs> a bunch of them too. But it's not as bad as a
0: baseball. Hear <laughs> you. On so yeah,
2: I've taken, I've taken, it never ended. I mean, it was, yeah, all kind of things happened and I just was too stubborn to quit. And I truly loved being out there in football. I miss Friday nights. I really do.
0: On the Baseball Lifer podcast with Pam Montgomery. And this is really cool. In 2000, you began teaching journalism at South Mountain High School in Phoenix. And why I say that's so cool I had to get into college to study journalism. It was not offered at the high school level in New Jersey in 1981, the year I graduated. And then the state didn't want me to study communications. And I had to be able to study communications to be able to study journalism. But you're teaching it at or you were teaching it at the high school level in Arizona. And I love that.
2: Yeah, I also taught very briefly at Arizona State at the Walter Cronkite School. I taught sports reporting, which was interesting, not what I expected. Um, one of my students at the end of the semester, you know, they they write critiques of all the uh, instructors and professors now. And he wrote, the next time ASU hires someone to teach sports reporting, it should be someone younger. I was oh, like, I'm 67. I'm like, well, and all I could think of was I worked with Chris Berman at ESPN. Nice, nice man. And he I'm two months older than he is. Now, do you think if Chris Berman came in to teach them sports reporting, they would have objected? Never. Of course not. (laughs)
0: They'd be they'd be delighted to have the guy who came up with slogans like "Bert Be Home, Bly Levin, that guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, again, maybe all the years I officiated, I, I, I've learned not to take things personally, (laughs) but anyway, yeah, I, I, I did teach in my school in in Phoenix was a title one school, which meant most of my students lived in poverty. So uh, it was an interesting, uh, uh, you know, I was from middle-class America, so it was, it was quite a shock for me. And I'll say this, when I lo- no longer could be on television, and honestly, it, it's a visual medium, and for women, if you're not looking great anymore, you know their attitude is sports are for eighteen to thirty-four year old males, and if you're thirty-five, you're too old. So I did quite a bit of feeling sorry for myself. Um, oh, poor me! I can't be on TV anymore. I, I was embarrassed to run into people I knew. I, you know, when because I was afraid they'd ask me what I was doing, and when I got. I, out of ESPN, I, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job bartending. I almost begged a sports bar owner to hire me to be a bartender because I used to be in the restaurant business. I was, I'm a really good bartender. And and I said, and I can talk sports to your patrons and entertain them, whether they're sober or not. And, and they wouldn't hire me because I didn't, you know, I didn't look like I was 24. So it was very hard. So when I decided to go back to college and become a teacher. And I ended up in South Phoenix here where so many of my kids, you know, they were homelessness and foster care and and addiction and just horrible situations. It made me realize what a jerk I was that I would ever complain about anything.
0: And you got the chance to show the world of journalism to hopefully at least a few questing minds.
2: I tried. I tried.
0: And that just wasn't available in New Jersey then. I don't know if it is today. I don't know well, if. I, if...
2: Most, newspaper, uh, most high schools, certainly my high school had a newspaper and kids covered sports. I don't know that there were specific sports journalism. Uh, there weren't classes in that. You're right. But today, I think most high school journalism programs that still exist. My last two years, they threw out my journalism class. I also taught communications, which meant I taught speech. I taught, uh, you know, writing. I taught, co- you know, conversational techniques, had interview people. Um, and they canceled all of that so that kids could take science, technology, engineering and math. And I said, well, as far as I know, even engineers need to be able to communicate. That yet- makes
0: sense, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah. And yet after, you know, our, our newspaper was thrown out after, you know, my school was about 60 years old. And and they've had a newspaper since the first the first day the doors open. I think it's so sad. And journalism programs around the country are falling by the wayside because everybody thinks every kid should be in STEM. And and that's sad because not everybody's wired that way. My attitude is everyone should have to take communication skills. We have a whole generation of kids that don't look anybody in the eye and don't know how to shake your hand or have a conversation. They only know how to text. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little annoyed by that. But I'd like to think the kids that I taught journalism to got something out of it.
0: We've been talking to Anne Montgomery on the Baseball Lifer podcast. and I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show. This has been one interesting, interesting half hour.
2: Well, I, I appreciate it. And I thank you for inviting me, Don.
0: Back with
1: a wrap in a minute. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the Internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860,
0: courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. Well, that sure was an interesting discussion with Ann Montgomery. And I really, I really would have thought that somebody who'd spent some time with ESPN would have loved every second of it. The other side of the coin is what we heard from Ann Montgomery during her appearance with us on the program. This weekend, We've got something interesting on. That's the Padres and the Dodgers are going to play in Mexico City. There's going to be a game there tomorrow afternoon at 5 Eastern and Sunday at 3 o'clock Eastern. So that ought to be an interesting event this weekend, the 29th of April and the 30th of April. Next week, our show is going to appear on Thursday. We've got another commitment on Friday, May 5th, and so on Thursday when I come to you, the guest will be a man named Dell Leonard Jones, and what he has done is he's taken the old, old poem, Casey at the Bat, he's made a historical novel based on that simple poem. So before I bring him on next week, I'll share with you the original poem, Casey at the Bat, which was written in 1888. And then we'll hear from Dell Leonard Jones, and he'll talk about his novel, which is called At the Bat. That's on next week's edition of the Baseball Lifer podcast. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>